Thanks for tuning into my new show, Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, author of the book, How to Get U.S. Market Ready. And in my previous podcast, I shared some of the lessons I've learned from 30 years in the wine and spirits business, helping brands enter and grow in the U.S. market. This series will be dedicated to the personalities who have been working in the Italian wine sector in the U.S., their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. I'll uncover the roads that they walked, shedding light on current trends, business strategies, and their unique brands. So, thanks for listening in, and let's get to the interview. Hi, this is Steve Ray, and welcome to this week's episode of the Italian Wine Podcast, Get U.S. Market Ready. Today, I'm very pleased to have as a guest uh, an old friend in the industry and one of the pioneers on the tech side of uh, the wine business, Paul Maybray. Great to be here. Paul, uh, why don't you give us a brief bio of your history? I think that your history in the industry and kind of some of the accomplishments you've had are very significant and still are having lasting effects. So talk us through uh, some of the things that you've done. Well, Steve, you're very kind. I think it's just uh, age and endurance that's kept me here uh, to have some accomplishments. But uh, uh, yeah, I've been in the industry. I'm going to say this out loud and I can't believe I'm putting it on a podcast. 28 years. How old are you? You look like you're 29. I'm not going to tell that answer, <laughs> but yes, I first started working uh, in uh, when I went to college as a sales rep. I'm a terrible sales rep. I worked for John Wright, who founded Domain Shandow in USA, but I wrote my own CRM program and that kept me going because I was a nerd. So it was just paying attention to uh, accounts. John was a great guy, uh, promoted me to vice president when I was too young and too stupid. Um, I thought I wasn't going to be uh, CEO young enough, so I moved over and worked at Nibon Coppola with Francis Ford Coppola's winery. Um, I report directly to Earl Martin, who's probably one of the greatest CEOs in the business. I'm a big fan, and he's actually a neighbor in my neighborhood now. And I was kind of a skunkworks guy. You know, I worked report directly to him, and I did all kinds of craziness, ERP, compliance, some normal cow sales, and then he gave me the wine club. And back then when the wine club uh, was there, if you ran the wine club, you were Quasimodo at the winery. I actually cried, honestly. I was like, please don't give me this part of this project. But he did. And we we were incredibly successful. Um, and in fact, so successful, we had to hire a technology company because they, in those days, they hand keyed credit cards. We had like almost like a library case where you pull out the library cards, and they pull out a name and it would have the credit card number. We'd hand key it. It'd take three weeks to get the whole wine club processed. And instead, when we hired the uh, person, a gentleman named Rob Crum, who did Access for Dummies, he did the first wine club processing software. Um, and we used the first 3PL over, which was, I think was called Wines West. It was a whole thing trying to make that faster, more efficient. And so we would process the club and send it within three days, which used to take like five to six weeks. So it was pretty amazing. And a very challenging club. It had like pasta in it. It had movies in it. And it still exists like that today to some degree. Super successful. And then I became a dot communist like everybody else. You know, in the late 90s, I uh, joined a, a Kleiner Perkins, Jeff Bezos startup called WineShopper.com. It was one of the first two wine startups, oh, Shop Room yeah. and Virtual yeah. Vineyards were the two big ones. Virtual Vineyards bought the URL wine.com from a bulletin board. And then we ended up, uh, one day we were fighting in the streets in alleys. And the next day we were sitting in cubicles next to each other when they merged the two companies, which was uh, a tale of one of the the most amazing culture shocks of an organization. You know, these very two different cultures jammed together. Um and that wine.com failed, as you remember. It went bankrupt, sold the URL and the inventory and bankruptcy that became the wine.com of today. Um, leaving that, I was like, hey, you know what? I don't want to build a wine retailer. 
But this internet thing is going to be amazing. I want to be Levi Strauss for the wine industry. I want to make macro changes. I want to sell shovels and pickaxes. So that's when I founded what's called, now called Wine Direct, you know, essentially selling e-commerce tools to wineries. So if you bought wine online from 2002 to 2006, there's a pretty high chance that it was our software powering it, uh, you know, and I was always focused on more than just DTC. I was looking at marketplaces back then. We were looking at, we were the first ones to launch direct to trade in New York City, which was a whole craziness. Now, that's why I'm friends with Cheryl Dursey from uh, LibDib, because I was kind of generation one and she's generation two in that whole DTT direct to trade. Uh, I, I, re- I was CEO for seven and a half years, uh, left that organization, found a company called Vintink, which was, you know, I'm like, around 2009. I'm like, God, this social media thing is here to stay. And I felt like I'd moved the industry forward a little bit with e-commerce, but it was not as far as I wanted to go. Uh, with social media being kind of the next wave, I, I ran around knocking on wineries' doors saying, hey, this is amazing. This new social media is, is unprecedented. We're able to see customers talking to us. They're like light bulbs lighting up in Boston, in Austin, in, in Idaho, in Florida. You know, it's it's amazing. We should. It's like breaking down the Berlin Wall for us wineries. We can actually communicate directly with the consumer. And then I went and built a software solution called Vintink, and Vintink became the largest uh, software solution at the time in the world for wineries. It was about fourteen hundred wineries paying us money, plus another, you know, eleven hundred that were using the free software at that point, twelve hundred or more. Sold that company twice, um, and. Uh, Two and a half years ago, it was great. I, when I was sold, I moved out of the wine industry. I tried to escape a little bit, you know, and manage the technology department at uh, W2O. You see that we sold it to. We were doing really cool stuff with, you know, um, uh, Dell and, and HP and uh, all kinds of interesting projects. Also, a lot of analytics. That's what I loved about it. Digging really deep into social media data to inform, you know, sales and marketing decisions. But Left there after the second sale, managed to follow it along to a restaurant middleware company, and then was uh, looking what I was going to do when I grew up. And a group of guys asked me to join the board of directors of Emmetry. They had challenges with the CEO, they were a failure to launch process. So they dropped me in the driver's seat to do a turnaround. I spent two year, about a year and a half turning around the company. And then we metamorphosized in November to PIX, which is uh, really trying to be the Google for wine. Okay, there's one point that you didn't mention that I will. One of my uh, sharpest recollections of you is at Wine to Wine, Stevie Kim's event that takes place in the fall in Verona. And you kneeled down at one point in your presentation behind the Wine to Wine sign. And that image became, I, I saw it all over the place, everywhere. It's even your avatar on a couple of places. Congrats on that. Very well done. Oh, thank you. You actually were the one that introduced me to CB Kim. So I thank you for that. And I, I, I love that event. I think it's one of the best events in the world for bringing together the greatest minds in wine. Um, and I'm very fortunate that they continue to invite you and me back where we get to have a, a reunion every year, except for this pandemic year, and really, <laughs> and really learn from each other. I think that that's also instruct. I mean, we learn a lot in a year, and especially me in the dot-com space. I mean, I don't even remember what happened last month. We're going so fast and the machine learning and all the things I'm learning that I can take back and teach to the wineries is, is a great path. Well, cool. So let's uh, get right into picks.wine. And uh, first thing I would mention is you've put together what I think of as a dream team of people in the industry. You as the founder, Jay Spalletta, who came from 
wine enthusiast, Erica Ducey, who's been at a couple of places and really making a name for herself, and Felicity Carter, who was a former editor of Meiniger's Wine Business International in Germany. How did that all come together? Well, you know, uh, like you, I've been around a long time, you know, as I said, a long time in the industry. And I've been looking at the talent of what it's going to take to put together this digital platform. And there's more voices behind it, people that worked on wine tech that you don't know about. And I saw Alder Euro. Amy Hoops just joined um, as well. So Dale Stratton. But everyone has this skill set to really unlock wine online and even wine in digital. And so I fundamentally believe that bringing talent together is the way that you win. And that if you're able to organize and focus that talent, you can change things. So it doesn't matter what the idea is, actually, to be honest with you. Now, the idea is good. If you have a good idea with a great team, it goes even better, right? So uh, I think we have a great idea with a great team. Okay. So when you morphed from, was it Emetry 2? Yeah. And I hated the name Emetry just to be, (laughs) for the exact reason that you just said, what's, how do you pronounce it? It is terrible. I I never said that to you, but yes, I agree. (laughs) When I took over as CEO, you know, you, you start to fix all the problems. And I looked at the name and I'm like, I have 99 problems to fix. That one I don't need to fix today. Yeah, that would have been one on the whiteboard that you would have scratched off early on in the process. Anyway, so what was the need that you saw in the marketplace and how did you, what did you pivot to and how did you go about that? Yeah, I wouldn't say it was a pivot. I mean, it was really a metamorphosis. We're using data always in that piece. Um, So our joke is we did Google Analytics before we did Google. We went backwards. Um, But the need in the market didn't exist as well prior to COVID. I, you know what, there is nothing we can say about COVID that's good around, uh, you know, the loss of lives, the businesses that are affected. But in our wine industry, something slightly wonderful happened. We woke up to the internet as the last industry to probably wake up to it. And that genie's out of the bottle now. But the problem with the internet is as much hope and promise as as it represents, and it will give a lot to us and create us and make us more sustainable, it's hard to do. No one is aggregating demand and helping Producers of all sizes connect to consumers using these digital tools in a, in a singular focused uh, ways. And that's that's what I strive to do with PICS is that really bring suppliers, sellers, and consumers together. That's my job. Okay. That sounds noble. Uh, now, how does that work? Like Google does, but only the commercial inventory of the world, the, the wineries' products, the retailers' products and putting them in front of consumers where they can get them and buy them the way they want to, when they want to, how they want to. So one of the challenges that consumers face in traditional retail is you walk into a store, you see the wall of wine, not enough information uh, necessarily on a front or back label or a shelf talker if it has one. We now have tools with label recognition technologies such as Vivino uh, and Wine Searcher uh, helps but still, I think consumers are still very confused. Well, agreed. I think that cons- there's a lot of products. Let's be, it's, it's one of the rare, super long tail industries, meaning that it has you know, hundreds of thousands of products that you're trying to understand. And when you go worldwide, it's millions of products, right? And, you know, essentially, you know, um, there's nothing like that in consumables. There's not 100,000 butters. There's not 100,000 milks. There's not 100,000 cereals. You know, it's pretty diverse. And that's both the beauty and the pain point that consumers are facing. Like I said, as a discovery platform, as a search engine, our job is to deliver that information wherever they are. If they're in the retail store, scanning, if they're at the restaurant, doing the menu, or if they're online trying to buy, our job is to help them find the wine they're looking for, find the ways to buy the wine and find other wines to buy. Discover all of those three things. 
Okay. One of the points I try and work with my clients on is there's a tendency, old world thinking of demographics, that because people live in a certain place, went to college, earned so much money, that they share other behavior characteristics with everybody else. And so it used to be this strategy of segment and differentiate. And I believe real strongly in aggregating based on behavior, not by demographics. And basically saying that somebody who has taken a positive step that is indicative or a proxy for something close to what you're selling makes them that much more of a prospect as opposed to a suspect. That's 100% correct. Psychographics trump demographics completely. Demographics only tell you three things, how far away from birth you are, how close to death you are, and in line a little bit, where you are in your earning potential, theoretically, that category. <laughs> I have to introduce this one, too. Uh, you know, uh, Tish, the editor at Beverage Media, had a great line about exclamation points. He said, you were given three for use in your lifetime, one for your birth announcement, one for your obit, and one other that you should use very very carefully. Now that's violated every day, all day on the internet, but... Uh, I love Tish. So can we get more into detail of how this might work and what it might look like to a consumer and what role the trade might play on that importer? Obviously, the bias of this uh, broadcast is imported wines and particularly Italian wines. Your residence in California gives you a bias towards California and domestic wines, although you have a lot of expertise internationally as well. So could you address that import versus domestic? Yeah. So domestic's pretty easy. I mean, it, you know, it's got its own kind of universe where they can sell either three tier through the wholesalers and retailers, or they can sell direct to consumer. Importers don't have that same luxury, unfortunately, yet. I do hope that we'll see that in the next, you know, five years to decade. Remember for importers, it's not a three tier system. It's a four tier system. You know, they're reaching, you know, uh, the, the wines from Italy are reaching through the importer who's reaching through the wholesaler who's reaching through the retailer, touch the consumer. I'm providing a direct line without getting in the way that they can talk to those consumers and help stimulate sales at the retail level. I'm, you know, by putting good information, by telling their story about their wines um, or helping make that clean. And then I'm matching the retailer's offers to that product information so that whether they're in the store helping them looking to figure out you know, what is this wine I'm trying to buy or whether the, the restaurant or they're looking for that wine, it's my job to provide those answers. And the better that the importers can do the content, the better that the wineries can give the content to the importers that's clean, that's not in first person, that's in third person, that tells a decent story, that's not, not hyperbolic, so that someone can make a decision. You know, if they pull up that label and scan and says that it has barnyard qualities or, or grassy Sauvignon Blanc, Maybe those are, that's what they're trying to understand. Do I want to put that bottle in my cart or back on the shelf? Our job's to solve for that. Okay. So you just touched on something that's a big pet peeve of mine because it's taken a lot of my time and energy to make happen. A universal source for access to up-to-date assets, meaning high-resolution bottle images, high-resolution label images, ratings, current vintage ratings, reviews, food and wine pairings, the kinds of questions that consumers have. What does this wine taste like in words I understand? understand and is going to have uh, go with what I'm going to have for dinner. That doesn't exist in the U.S. There's a company that uh, just solved that problem for the beer industry called Syndigo. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Started some conversations with them. That's a smaller footprint, though, of beer than there is wine. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, probably, probably orders plural of magnitude. 
But why doesn't that solution exist in the wine industry? I know we're slow to the, uh, get off the mark in terms of e-commerce, but content is the same thing. So we got a lot of people scraping content and often scraping bad content and just slapping it in. Yeah, we're going to have to solve that problem, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I hate to say that, you know, it's one of the things that I have to solve in order to do this correctly. It's a hard problem. It's, you know, there's a lot of people trying to solve it in a lot of different ways, to be really fair. Um, there's a few people that collaborate. We collaborate with the LiveX team. Uh, they're trying to solve it through their Elwin project. In fact, I think we have a meeting with them tomorrow. We're big fans of what they do. We have different paths to the solution. And we have different magnitudes of our solution. I mean, they're really kind of focused on the fine wine category. We're focused on Bodabox to Petrus. It doesn't matter, right? You know, our job is to help the consumer. But it's a big problem. And that that's the kind of problems that are exciting. Those are the kind of problems that... that I'm suited for. That's what I was built for, essentially. So I'm excited to solve it with the team using all kinds of different combinations of whether it's machine learning, uh, whether it's speaking, whether it's content teams, all of those are parts of the solution. There's not one single answer. And that's the only way we're going to get there. Okay. So data is at the heart of what you're doing. We've talked a lot about that in the past. How will suppliers benefit from access to the kind of data you're going to be able to generate and then put that into practice with programs that can reach consumers to drive more sales? That's a great question. So, you know, the origin story of obviously um, what we do is we were selling behavioral data to large wine enterprise groups. We were exploring big swaths of data to say, you know what, consumers in Boston that buy this wine look like this, right? You know, um, that's the job to do. That's a byproduct of any digital effort or energy. That's the magic of digital. Right. Is that that feedback loop that you can actually cluster and group and say, OK, people that buy Sauvignon Blanc also buy uh, Pinot Grigio. I'm making that up, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, but in this area of this of the and that look like this. Right. So really building these micro tribes based upon region. I mean, because people that drink wine in Georgia look very different than people that drink wine in California and look very different than people that drink wine in New York, to be really honest with you. So there are lots of wines that are similar. You know, and every tier has a different group. And you know what? It's people that buy um, 19 Crimes and Apothic drink wine differently than people that buy Matthiasin and Massacin, right? They're very different consumer ideas and segments at different price points. You know, at the bottom, sometimes it's just good alcohol delivery and a fun time. The other ones are looking for existential experiences in their mouth. You know, I don't know the answer to any of those pieces, but identifying them, clustering them, and helping wineries target them is, will be part of our job for sure. So where are you in the development stage? You talked about launching in 2021. Well, that's what you have on your site. Okay, well, it's uh, now April. <laughs> yeah, 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 you have dark circles under my eyes for a reason. So, I mean, we, we started in earnest in November, this, this metamorphosis. Um, we are in what's called closed beta. Closed beta is for us to talk to consumers. <gasps> magical okay and we're test them and watch their behaviors and see how they're using the software see how they're interacting with our content to make sure that we have market fit before we launch my number one job is to make sure we have market fit it's a very tech concept which is is my tool doing the job for you steve ray do you like it is it solving your problem is it helping you do what you want to do and when it is the minute you go yes this is helping me solve a problem that's when we open it up to the world and I'll hold okay. it behind closed beta until I get to that side, honestly, if I have to. Yeah, I think asking that question is kind of like saying, when is the COVID thing going to be over? Um, it, it never is. I, in developing projects like this, my philosophy is you can never get it right, but you can keep getting it better. Now, the counter to that is good enough, done is good enough. 
<laughs> so, so we have two sayings around that. Um, perfect is the enemy of good. Good is the engine of better. And fast gets good better than good gets fast. Okay. One of the things that I think you do better than everybody else is to capture the essence of things in uh, some short uh, descriptive phrases. And there's a number that you had used in previous conversations that I thought were particularly interesting. And you were talking about uh, eliminating or the, the entropy in the system of wine and, and the gazillions of products that are out there. Can you talk about that? Yeah. You know, there's a half-life of wine notes, um, the entropy of wine. Also, there's so much, it's so confusing. I, I'm trying to understand the exact point you're making, but there's so much wine out there trying to organize it in a way that the consumer is going to think of is really interesting. And the, the, there's a big problem is the, the methodology of discovery is locked behind walls. And what I mean by that is most of the critics are struggling to survive, right? They want to earn a living. You can't give away your, your criticism for free. But how many consumers want to subscribe to all of the discovery platforms, meaning, you know, uh, Jeb Dunnick, Jancis Robinson, Galoni, Suckling, Enthusiast, Spectator, Decanter, that budget goes away. That's too much money to, to discover. And um, they can't rate enough wines to match the volume coming out on an annual basis. If you only pick one of those critics and maybe the critic doesn't even align fully to your thing. So it's a big problem about discovery based upon um, criticism or even enrichment, tasting those, right? Because it lives behind a paywall. So dumbing it all down on the issue that I see with uh, working with new brands is the first question we get from anybody we talk to is always, do you have scores? And there's the fundamental issue that there are some publications that won't give a score to a product that's not currently sold in the US, but you need a score in order to sell it in. So that's a challenge. One of the things I did this year was an analysis of filters being used by a variety of e-commerce resources, anything from supermarkets all the way down to individual stores. And there, once again, there's no unanimity in that. There's no consistency in that. And it's almost as though nobody really knows the process of elimination that a consumer goes through. I guess the assumption there is a consumer. You know, everybody's going to be doing it differently. Some people care about what country it's from. But you boil that down to a physical store, they got to make decisions. Are we going to organize the store by country? Are we going to organize the store by style of wine, price of wine, those kinds of things? How will Pix Wine be able to help consumers wade through all that complexity? The great news about digital is you can move the shelf space quickly and fast, um, right? You can make them organize them in a hundred different ways at the same time, to be really honest with you. I think that that's the fundamentals. But I actually don't necessarily believe in looking at it through the lens of that organizational system. I believe in the lens of theirs, they're different types of buyers, right? They behave different. There's a collector. Behavior, as we've been talking about, that's the differentiator. The differentiator. Right. And like my job is to help them discover wines in their behavioral slipstream. You know, if you're a collector, this is going to be your place to go. And you'll probably sort it by scores and you'll probably sort it by limitation and dollars and, you know, a myriad of different kind of very complex factors. Whereas maybe a nouveau buyer, someone who doesn't want to be embarrassed, is going to go to the popular area, you know, of wines. These are the most popular. Or maybe you're a wine guy like you and me, and I'm like, look, I've drank all the popular wines times 10. I'm looking for the weird stuff now. I want to go, I want to go explore weird regions, weird varieties, weird winemakers, weird, you know, I want to test something and, and 
find a new path that I get to share with my friends when I find something interesting, right? Those are all different behaviors. And so mm-hmm. we're analyzing those behaviors continuously. We'll put up original thesis uh, with the site and then we'll test and we'll change the okay. site based upon that thesis. So let's talk about Italy as an example, a particular example. One of the things we know, well, you can argue the number, but there's hundreds of indigenous varietals, which are very poorly known around the world, even amongst uh, people who know a lot about wine. That's a challenge. Uh, I get emails all the time from, I produce Grignolino and it's the best Grignolino in the world and I need this. Somebody else with a Barbera from Monferrata, somebody else with a Frappiano and somebody else with Greco de Tufo and so forth. How is your project going to help the Italian wineries, who in many cases are just farmers? They're not marketers, they're not corporations. I believe in two parts of my business, right? The utility and functionality of the site that we're building. That's fu- that's fundamental. I also believe that discovery is driven through content. So I've put together the best team in the world of content right now. And their job is to be a big tent and invite everybody into the tent. And their job is to tell a story about why these wines, varietals, regions, wineries are interesting and then make that shoppable. So the editorial team is completely separate and they are unpurchasable. There is not a single business person that can sit in an editorial meeting, except for me accidentally as the CEO, but that they, there's a divide of church and state like you've never seen in this kind of industry. Um, and because we don't make money off of sponsored content, we don't sell our content. It allows for wineries to go pitch, you know, these interesting varietals. Hey, we want to pitch about Italian varietals that are indigenous that you've never heard of. And in fact, if you've seen our emails in the beta test, one of the most interesting and most responded to was crazy varietals you've never heard of. And they had a shopping list of them and why you should buy them and why they're good deals. And people loved it. So I hope that helps the Italian wineries to say, look, there's great stories in all of this stuff. There's different stories for different people. A collector is going to want to know possibly a story about these are the next cult wines you haven't heard of, right? Um, an explorer might look variety or maybe a casual consumer is like, wow, I've never heard of this variety before. I'd like to try. Every variety is new to everybody at some point in their journey. Absolutely. And, and can be rediscovered, by the way, as well in their journey. So, what do you mean? Some uh, explain, give me an example. Uh, if it's new to you and you went on, you moved on to cab and you go back, oh wow, I forgot about how great uh, Vignette tastes. Let me come back to it. That, you know, this story is, it re inspired me to go try some again. It's been a long time because we are not one taste profile in our wine journey, right? We're not static in it. Yeah, it, it evolves, right? Yeah. Right, we yeah. evolve and we evolve at different times too, at different situations. We're kind of situational as well. So, very fascinating. I believe content is fundamental to that change. And yet, there's a movie, I forget the name of it, you'll probably remember it, where the guy says, I'm not drinking effing Merlot. And and it had a tremendous impact on, on the lack of sales on Merlot. Granted, it was 20 years ago now. Can that kind of thing still happen? Is public opinion on perception of wines manipulatable by Hollywood or national publications? So there's been a lot of studies into the sideways effect as it relates to Merlot and and Pinot Noir. You know, interestingly enough, I think the confluence of a lot of events tied together. And then we like to make things simple. We like to make answers simple, right? So um, there was an overproduction of Merlot. There's inflation of price of Merlot. Um, you know, there's a glut of it coming at the same time as that movie was happening, right? And then that piece. And then let's not forget that the movie has less effect than the gatekeepers. And when I say gatekeepers, I mean the buyers. 
tasting notes aren't written for the consumer for the general for the most part they're written for the buyer consumers don't care about the soil for the most part consumers don't care about elevage consumers don't care about all of these different what native yeast you use it's a small 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 subset of consumers that care that doesn't make it less important it's still important in the process it's still important to those consumers it is important for the trade and the trade are really the gatekeepers of like what am i putting on the shelf today and why you know if you love natural wine you got a natural wine selection. If you don't, you don't, right? And then pieces, if you, if you hate big, big wine, you probably try not to carry things like Gallo. If you know that the consumer likes Apothic and you're going to make money on it, you put it in the store. All of those are true stories. It just depends on if the buyer has a decision about his path. So they're the bigger gatekeepers. I think that's a really good point. You touched on something I think is very important to me, and that's the evolution of journalism in the wine industry. We've seen, obviously, a decline in what used to be magazines, newspapers, the way people consumed media, and the role of the journalist as gatekeeper or critic as gatekeeper. You touched on this before. Where is that going? You know, there's all this, it's all broken up. We've Five, ten years ago, you did that uh, thing about we're still here or the blogger thing. Uh, I forgot what it was. But I thought that was really seminal at, at the time that it kind of changed the way the industry looked at how people are influenced. So now there's more evolution. COVID has come. How is uh, Pix Wine going to go the next evolution? Yeah, so let's let's talk about journalism first in general, and then we'll move into picks. I think the reality of it is that the internet changed journalism in general, and what it did is, it, you know, magazines are not as measurable as a click, right? So that that was really the big bifurcation of decision making. You know, the old adage in advertising was, "I'm advertising, half of it works, half of it doesn't." I don't know which half, right? Well, the argument I used was we use demographics because that's the only metrics that they could provide us as a as an ad buyer. But it wasn't relevant metrics, but it's all we had. Right. So that was a big change. You could actually say, look, for every hundred clicks, I get 10 purchases or for every thousand. So you could buy, you can make them. Everything became a good math equation on that piece. And that was a big shift. Unfortunately, um, in wine journalism, it was more of the luxury part of the magazine. It wasn't the driving core. So whether you had it in major publications or minor papers, we started to see quickly the atrophy of, of that category down to where there's really 25 super critics in the world. There's, you know, the other part is there's a conflation between criticism and, and journalism as it relates to wine. Jancis Robinson does journalism. She does criticism as well. I'm right. But there's a big difference between what Robert Parker did, which is only criticism versus journalism. And that, that's, that's a really interesting problem that we, we conflate those two things. Wine journalism has always been pretty small in general to be honest with you. Wine pros or wine storytelling, you know, between the spectator and, and, you know, the enthusiast or decanter and everything. So some people have more journalistic frameworks, but they also added criticism. I think that's what made the, the, the conflation. Now, that being said, because we've reduced ourselves to 25 super critics in the world, we need other outlets to taste those wines. I mean, in the United States, we come out with what, 160,000 wines per year. And there's no way that those 25 super critics from Esther Mobley to Eric Asimov to Leslie Sobraco can drink 160,000 wines unless we put a dialysis machine on their back to, to transfer that. So I think that that's the core problem. So we needed to expand out. And the Internet gave us a pl- uh, platform for that, uh, you know, way back when, when the blog started. It was a Gutenberg Press with a distribution network for any fool that wanted to write about wine. And there were a lot of fools that did it. And there were a lot of talented people that did it. Alder Yarrow, you know, Tyler Coleman. 
Um, Joe Roberts, great talents that went out there and worked the market, worked hard, became actual people that are, you know, recognized critics at this point. You know, I mean, Alder works for Francis, writes for her as well. So then that transformed into micro influencer, micro blogging. That's kind of, I think that that was part of the death of blogs. Not only did the wineries not pay a lot of attention to them, but they moved into this pace where you could write little mini notes. You could go out and create audiences. And the shift of journalism, really, the part that most people struggled with was uh, in the old days, you had a distribution platform, just like wineries sold to distributors. And that was the job. Writers wrote their content, newspapers, magazines distributed, right? Essentially, in that piece, editors cleaned it up. At some point when the internet came, the shift came where they not only wrote the content, they had to go help make, build an audience and move that content, you know, build their Twitter following, their Instagram following, blog on the side so that they can tell people about that. That was hard for some people to make that transition. One of my favorite books is uh, by Clay Shirky, who teaches at uh, NYU, and it was titled Here Comes Everybody. And it basically talked about that. When when the people who control the press are no longer the people who control the press, the press is open to everybody. It changes the whole nature of journalism. And that's a subject very dear to my heart. That's what I majored in in college and have always been a writer. I love journalism, uh, by the way. I think that that needs to be reinforced, and criticism needs to be reinforced in a positive way. And, and we need a a new way to monetize it that's differentiated. I think that's fundamental. Um, You know, I'm looking at that every day. Every day, PIX is talking about how do we help monetize criticism? How do we help unlock these walls that are are holding back great voices? Look, uh, let me put up a small example. There is no more respected human being in my mind on the planet for wine than Jancis Robinson. You cannot hold a greater pillar of thought and innovation, and especially female-led on that piece. The amount of people in the United States that know who she is the outside of the enophiles it is close to zero, right? That is a tragedy on itself, right? I mean, she is the greatest of the great, uh, and I, I believe that truly. Unfortunately, the internet hasn't allowed her to expand that because she has to generate dollars. I mean, the reality is you have to make money from the stuff you write. How do we do a better job unlocking that? How do we do a better job exposing this great mind outside of the books about to average consumers. So they see this in a different way, right? We did it for Parker actually in the old days, you know, he, he made an, an easy matrix for a consumer who didn't know about wine to make a judgment call. He put a hundred point scale. He, he dumbed it down to that. And I know that everyone, whatever we want to say about that. And he became the greatest critic in history for any category. No other industry held one person that held so much power over an industry like Robert power, not movies, not books, not anyone. Um, so fascinating. I don't know what, what the answer is yet, but I, believe me, I study it every day. Yeah. And I guess it's a, a function of fragmentation. The, the more data we get, the more ability we can target things or people can search for things that fit their needs and interests. The challenge, as you say, is... You can't uh, search behind a paywall, though. That's the thing. You can't see something. That's the key. That's the secret. Even the yeah. search that lets you have the Library of Alexandria in your pocket. If one of the rooms is closed or one of the library wings is locked, you don't learn. So we can look forward to you fixing that lock and opening that door with Pix Wine. I mean, uh, that's the job. And, and not just that, elevating other voices. How do we get other voices up? How do we get BIPOC voices? How do we show, I mean, look, one of our core principles, and then this is very essential to our culture is how do we lift other voices that aren't being lifted? How do we show, um, an Asian person using their taste profiles with wine? How do we 
an African-American person, uh, you know, LGBTQI? How do we get all these people up so that they have a voice and that actually the wine consumer looks like America? The wine consumer looks like the world. Um, and we can start to learn from that, too. Nitsiki uh, is one of my friends, and she talks about flavor profiles that people are telling her about gooseberry. And she lives in Africa. She's like, I've never seen a gooseberry. How would I know what that tastes like? In South Africa, you know, and, and, and we need better, we need to use people to have that language that helps other people. And by building that big tent and sharing it, we'll expand the category in my mind. Okay, good point. I, I'm a big believer that it's an issue of um, vocabulary, that we've gone to an extreme about, in fact, I use the example of fried gooseberries and all kinds of different things that don't really, I've never seen a gooseberry and never had a gooseberry, and I don't know what a sautéed gooseberry might taste like. That those types of descriptions don't answer the questions that people have. What does it taste like in words that I understand? Yeah, I think it's a duality, um, to be honest with you. I, I, I think it's not one answer or the other. I think it's both, to be really fair. I mean, look, wine is not singularly simple and not singularly complex. It's both of those things, and depending on your need state, and depending on your level of education and your want, the different languages will answer the questions at different times, right? Um, and so I think that we shouldn't we shouldn't be so anti-intellectual that we we, I, I, we rail against dumbing down language, myself included. But we should also think that there's a place for that smart language. There's a place for professors. There's a place for those pieces. You know, they're, they're the best critics of movies don't always choose the movies that I like to watch all the time. Right. right. Uh, Robert Joseph says the best. He goes, I love, uh, uh, um, you know, Nabokov. I love Dostoevsky. I love, you know, um, Dickens. But I don't want to read them every day. Sometimes I like a good Stephen King book that makes me, you know, move through. Okay. Uh, question. This is all about wine. Are you guys considering incorporating spirits now or at any time? Absolutely. I mean, Pix is an open uh, name for that. I think that the fundamental job first is to do wine. But yeah, obviously... The category is wide. Uh, Alcbev is all in our lens. Um, and in fact, we are focused on all Alcbev. But wine is our primary focus. And that's the more complicated one to deal with. So good on you. So wrapping it up, I like to end uh, each interview with a big takeaway of people are listening to all this future talk. And what can they walk away from having listened to this uh, interview today and be able to put to use immediately. Well, our interview had a lot of topics. We covered a lot of ground. I think that, you know, we're, we're talking macro topics. I mean, simply enough, it, it, since PIX was generally a good focus, thank you for doing that. You know, obviously, if you want to participate in PIX, it's free. You can email us. It, it doesn't matter if you're a wine or a retailer. The thing that we'll ask is that we'll integrate with your systems, you know, um, or you'll be able to also enter your content in for free if you're a winery. You own your message. I don't want to own it. I want you to own your message. That's uniquely us. That's uniquely picks. We want you to touch the consumer with your words wherever they're at. As it relates to the bigger macro topics that you and I talked about, I think it's time for you to invest in tech and digital. If you're not doing it today, you're missing out because the reality is everyone else is doing it. The genie's out of the bottle. You can't put it back in. And you can't use it as an excuse. Oh, I don't understand social media and this. Find somebody who does. The genie's out of the bottle. If you're not doing it, I promise your neighbors are at this point. You know, and, and the good news for everyone, the good news for the entire industry is that the efficacy and the tools are getting faster and better for us every single day since the beginning of COVID. And the knowledge base and our learning, the gap that we have, the deficit that we didn't have before is closing up a bit. We're catching up with yesterday. Yeah, one of the things I heard when we were 10 months into the, the COVID thing that we've, we've caught up 
to where we should be 10 years in 10 months. And we've also advanced 10 years in 10 months just to get where the rest of the world is now. Yeah, I think that's optimistic. I, I, I think we're still catching up with yesterday. But it sounded good. So, yeah, 10 and 10 and 10. That was kind of the idea. Accelerated <laughs> 10 years ahead, um, but we were 100 years behind. So, <laughs> it, you know. Okay, well, I want to thank uh, Paul Mabry for um, participating uh, with us today. I thought you had made some brilliant comments there and some insights. And as always, really great quotes that get people thinking about things. We have covered a lot of topics. But a big thank you. I mean, it's been fun fun to be friends with you over all these years and watch all this stuff evolve. I'm a big fan. So thank you for participating. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you in person, hopefully uh, in November this year. And I'm going to give you a big hug. Uh, I'm going to be a hugger. <laughs> after, after COVID, I'm going to be an overhugger. Yeah. And over tipper. I think that's what a lot of people in our industry are saying is now it's time to, you know, pay the people who you talk to. Oh, yeah. We're, we're actually doing a program with Somalis right now where we're hiring Somalis like crazy bringing them in, trying to help that industry and giving them a second job if they want to work outside the floor forever with picks. Yeah, I mean, that that makes brilliant sense. I love it. Cool. Okay, so Paul, thank you very much. Maybe next year we'll talk about that. Yeah, sounds great, my friend. So this is Steve Ray saying thank you for listening this week. Uh, we'll be back next Monday. And a big shout out to Paul Mabry for being our guest today. Thank you, Paul. This is Steve Ray. Thanks again for listening on behalf of the Italian Wine Podcast.